Well, this morning, I hope that you've had a moment to be able to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to begin today just reading the first uh, 27 verses, uh, which I know really sounds like a lot, except that we could have read them all. Uh, So let's start in verse 1. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Weird flex. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. We continue on in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw 
which grew and became strong so that its top reached heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Father, let your word light our path this morning that we might know you more and glorify you in all the earth. We're going to work through the remaining verses of this chapter as we go along, but I understand that's a bit of an extended reading and an extended intro of today's passage. But I believe what it helps us to understand is a few things that we're going to go through now. One is, let's just acknowledge this. And, and I think that this is a bit of what we might have even been experiencing in worship this morning as it, is, as it seems that God is after something in us. Let's just recognize this, that God will use many means to get our attention. We've already recognized a couple of them in this book thus far. We've seen, a, we've seen dreams and interpretation. We've seen a statue that was... Out in the midst of a field, we've seen a second statue that was like doubling down on that mistake. And this morning, we're introduced to another dream, a second dream, and an interpretation, as well as a tree. But what does that help point us to? That God will use many means to get our attention. So I'm just going to start with an application question right out of the gate that I think is pertinent for us today. What is God using in your life right now to get your attention? What is it that he's using to get your attention? And let's hear today's passage from that, from that standpoint. You'll recall from last Sunday that at the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He again stops short, though. He doesn't honor God as his own. He kind of puts them amongst the other gods. He's not even a standout God. And we realized, as we looked earlier in the book of Daniel, that this was a part of the Babylonian polytheism that was a part of the day. So this has been a pattern that's been repeated throughout the book of Daniel. 
And we know from this study that that is actually something that, that God uses to help us understand the themes that he is after. That God is not to be placed amongst many other things in our life. That he is to be the one that is set apart and rules over all. But at the beginning of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar honors God for what the Most High God has done for me. So let's just kind of acknowledge right out of the gate, this is a different Nebuchadnezzar. Something's happening. Nebuchadnezzar is actually beginning his testimony. He is testifying to not only those who would have been the original hearers of this decree, this proclamation that goes throughout all of the earth, he is testifying to you and to me today so that we might hear what the Lord has done for him. Why? So that we can experience the same. It's a different Nebuchadnezzar. But it kind of gets into some linguistic things where he starts to say, well, like, these other gods are still kind of my gods, but this God is my most high. What is he doing? He's actually giving us a form of his own testimony, of his encounter with the most high God. But he's saying out front, something's different this time. Something's different this time. How does this kind of radical transformation happen? What's happened between Chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's no kind of verses in between that help us understand. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is going to go on to understand, but I think that that question of what causes this kind of radical transformation to happen is not just a question that I'm asking today to keep our outline moving. It would have absolutely been at the core of what those who were originally hearing this would have been saying. How did we go from chapter 3 Nebuchadnezzar to chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar? And it was an encounter with the Most High. See, it starts in verse 4 where Nebuchadnezzar kind of introduces this second dream. We just read it. uh, Verses 4 through 18 give us the, the second dream. And he begins again, he says, by searching out the wisdom of the world. He looks to the the Chaldeans, the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers. He looks to the things of the world. And once again, they fall short. The other gods kind of take a step back on the shelf of God's. They fall short. It's inadequate to be an interpretation that would settle the soul of the king. This great king, as we're told in this passage. So Nebuchadnezzar turns to Daniel. He, he believes that the Israelites' insight was superior to that of the other wise men who served the Babylonian gods. So he, he's kind of like relieved when Daniel finally walks in. Finally, somebody who can tell me what's going on. But in verse 8, he still speaks of the Babylonian deity as my God, meaning that this earthly king has not yet acknowledged in his testimony the eternal king. And then Daniel comes in in verse 19 through 27, and he gives the interpretation of the dream. Can we just acknowledge for a moment, this is, this is like the epitome of speaking truth to power, isn't it? Daniel comes in, what does he start his words with? Uh, please let this interpretation be for your enemies. Why? This is not great. It involves humbling of the great king. It involves his humbling. As a matter of fact, in, in verse 22, I have a hard time escaping when it says, it is you, O king. I have a hard time escaping Nathan's words to King David. It is you. What is happening? God is singling him out for an encounter. 
God is singling him out to say, hey, by the way, I, I rule over the heavens, but guess who I am after right now? You. I don't mean after us. I don't mean after the king in some foreboding way. I mean his pursuit. See, he lovingly reigns over his kingdom. So he is lovingly pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. It's been decades at this point in the timeline of the book of Daniel. It's been decades and he hasn't responded. This reminds us reminds us that God's justice as a part of his nature is not at odds with his delight in showing mercy. They don't compete with one another. He's not toggling back and forth. He delights to show mercy to those who will receive it. And he is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. Now, today, we know throughout the rest of Scripture that it is at the cross where Christ laid down his life as a ransom for us. That is where we see divine justice and mercy meet in the most beautiful and glorious of ways. Jesus, actually, the one who lays his life down for us, Jesus actually uses the image of a giant tree whose branches provide shade for the birds of the air, as we heard about in verse 21 of Daniel 4, but he uses it to speak of the kingdom of God. He does so in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. We have it on the screens for you today. He says, and he said, that's Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is just after he speaks of requiring faith of a mustard seed to receive the kingdom of God. Do you notice the similarities to the tree in Daniel chapter 4? Here's what this helps us understand. God's kingdom displays not the proud military might of Nebuchadnezzar, but the characteristics of its king, Jesus Christ. Caring, humble, but invincible. With that in mind, it might change our perspective on the circumstances we're walking through right now. Let me put it this way. Perhaps you're walking through something in life right now and you feel like Nebuchadnezzar must have felt when he began to put together that the imagery that was, was changing from a tree stump being cut down to a person who is being divinely dealt with. And perhaps the circumstances that you're walking through in life right now feel like they're in the midst of that fog where you're trying to understand why is it that I'm walking through these things? You might think, well, why do you say it that way? Well, I know the feeling. My family knows the feeling right now. Friends, people who are close to me know this feeling right now. I've had numerous conversations over the last one, of, one to two weeks of people who feel like life is just kicking them in the chest right now. I've heard this phrase repeated over and over again. I would just like a win in life right now. Even just a small one. 
Because life feels like the, the L's or the losses. They're just piling up too much. I could just use, I could use a win. So my question for you is this this morning. Do you believe that God is working in the losses? In the circumstances? In the things that you're walking through in life? Is he working in the L's? Because I'm here to tell you that I know the feeling, but I also know that he is. I know that he's working in the midst of those things. And and so I, I share this today out of care and concern for us as a church, not out of condemnation. Not some form of correction. God is working, but perhaps he's working on something different than what you want right now. It's what he's after as our divinely loving king. This is why I said I think that, that God is kind of setting us up to receive something from him today, or maybe even more importantly, to unburden something from ourselves that he alone can carry for us. So as we allow the Holy Spirit just a moment to just deal with our hearts in this area, let's consider two things I think that this passage draws our attention to, kind of serving as a guide to interpreting our understanding of our circumstance right now. Verse 23 talks about the stump being kind of chopped down, and so we realize that we may be chopped down in this life, but, if we, but we can be rooted in Christ. We can be cut down in this life, but we are rooted in Christ. See, Daniel is trying to lift the vision of his original hearers from earthly kingdoms to a heavenly kingdom ruled by God. God is the one who sent his son to redeem people for his eternal heavenly kingdom. And so at times you'll hear me refer to it as Christ's kingdom because his blood was the costly gift that paid our ransom. He rescued and redeemed us to himself calling us out of the world and into his glorious light. So what does he become? Well, he becomes the foundation, the the roots of what we can build our lives on. And I don't say this because it's just a neat illustration. I say this because Scripture tells us so. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What did we hear Nebuchadnezzar start with at the beginning of chapter 4? It's what we'll see he ends with as well. Thanksgiving. So we may be chopped down in life, but we are rooted in Christ. Are you rooted in Christ today? Have you made a foundational shift in your life? Leaning not on your own understanding, but fully relying on Christ's work on your behalf. What are you rooted in? Has it been found to be a shaky foundation? Is it like the sugar sand that Florida is so popular for? Or is it something that will stand firm eternally, like Jesus Christ? So that's verse 23. Verse 27, I think, also calls us to something. It It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. In his grace, God provides an opportunity for repentance. Daniel just lays it out so boldly. This is why I said this is an amazing act of speaking truth to power. But he calls them to repentance in verse 27 when he says, Therefore, therefore, O king, 
Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel shares the gospel with Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. He's not implying that you can earn God's favor by your performance. Don't misunderstand. See, if you're here today and you've never taken the step of placing your trust in Christ's work on your behalf, what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar is also an invitation to you today. Break off your sins and begin practicing righteousness. It's repentance. It's turning from something. It's turning to something. But if you're here today and you have taken that step of placing your trust in Christ's work on your behalf, this is a lifestyle that we're called to. It's a lifestyle for us, placing our trust in Christ's work on our behalf and a life that looks different than the world around us. That looks like we've actually taken that step. Paul, before King Agrippa in Acts 26.20 says this, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Daniel's basically saying, Nebuchadnezzar, if you really get serious about this, then your life will declare the reality of your change of heart. Have you ever been around somebody that had a change of heart? And you can tell without them really telling you? That's what Daniel's saying. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to have to look radically different. That interchange is going to have to start to work its way out. But, but here's where we're faced with a challenge today. Perhaps you're here and you think, you hear these words and you just think, this sounds like it's all about performance. And so you're sitting here and you think about this kind of performance-driven question that we may be wrestling around with in our own head, where we're putting our trust in ourselves and our abilities, our accomplishments, our morals, or whatever else you might be putting your trust in today. And you might be thinking of God this morning, what is it that you want from me? What is it that you want from me? But can I say that that might actually be an obstinate question? See, the repentant heart, the humble heart, looks to God in the moment of need and asks, what are you after in me? Do you hear the difference in the two? What do you want from me? Or what are you after in me? See, this message wasn't just for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just a warning to leaders at all levels not to allow the pride of life to go unchecked. It is for each one of us here today. Let me ask this. What is God using in your life right now to get your attention? Have you received the salvation freely given by God? Have you submitted your life to his lordship in all areas? Does your your life reflect the change of heart that Christ as both your Savior and Lord calls you to? See, remember that sin is pervasive in our nature. It affects not only our actions, but our thoughts and, and even our motivations as well. 
the things that kind of drive us. And so the call to repentance is simply this, turning from looking to ourselves, turning from looking to our ways, turning from looking at our own understanding or our own motivations, but what or who is it that we're called to turn to? And in the next section of Daniel, verses 28 through 33, and I'm going to leave you to read that on your own, I would encourage you to just take some time today. It takes about 10 minutes to read through the entire chapter. To just read this entire chapter fully, but I want to point out a couple of things. We'll see that we're called to look up to God and receive from Him understanding in His ways and His wisdom for life because it is for our benefit when God humbles us. I'm just going to focus in on Verses 29 through 31 right now. At the end of 12 months, he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, I don't know who he was answering. Kind of the royal we in this moment, it sounds like. The king answered and said, it is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. So it's about a year of time that's passed since Daniel's interpretation. There's providing a a tremendous opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. It's a reminder of what we see throughout Scripture, that God pours out His mercy and He restrains His wrath. That That is God's divine patience with us. But instead of repenting as a fruit of the kindness of God, Nebuchadnezzar looks over his kingdom puffed up with pride, in that very moment, God humbles him. God humbles him. If we can look through our passage in verses 34 through 37, we'll see how it is that we can praise God because he always does what is right. Daniel testified of his Lord decades before Nebuchadnezzar finally claimed the the true God as his own. What's the lesson for us in that? What is it that we learn from that this morning? That we should never give up on God's grace. No matter the degree or duration of spiritual failure in yourself or in others, never give up on the grace of God. It never gives up on you. But what in what seems like by worldly standards, Nebuchadnezzar's abject humiliation, he lifts his eyes and is restored. He spends a period of time in this kind of beast mode and not in like the good gym kind of way. Like in the dew of heaven covering him and eating the grass. Let's look at verse 34 together. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. I would say this is a conversion experience. I would say this is a moment when Nebuchadnezzar is no longer looking to the God of heaven as one of many gods. He's looking to him as the one and only true God. He looks to him 
not for all the blessings and all of the trappings of who God is, but for God himself to rescue him and redeem him. See, part of the lesson for us today is that when Nebuchadnezzar is looking down on others, God is distant from him. But here's the beautiful thing that we're reminded of in this passage. When in that moment of true clarity, Nebuchadnezzar looks up in desperation, God provides his grace. God is near to him in that moment. The words remind us not only that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble as we see in James 4, 6 but also that there is no one that the grace of God can't reach. Because God graciously humbles those who trust in themselves. It's what he was doing with Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're here today, and life feels all too filled with losses, look up. If you're here and you think the sins of your past are too much for the grace of God, look up. If you're here and you're tired of being tired, tired of running on empty, look up. If you're here and you know that you can't keep looking to the same old way of doing things, expecting a different result, look up. If you're here and you're tired of looking to other people to be the solution or the salve for your soul, the satisfaction that you find in this life, then look up. No matter your season, your circumstances, your past, your current your need, your future worries, look up and see the king who gives rest and protection for his creation. This is the creation that he is working in for his glory and working through for his kingdom. In the final verses, Nebuchadnezzar does what we began with. He praises God. I think that provides hope for us all, that God would reach what seems like up to this point an obstinate king. But he's now bowed to the king of kings. I also think Daniel 4 provides a wonderful way to bring people in to the testimony of what God is doing in your life right now. Begin and end with praise and let the middle be filled with turning away from the things of the world looking to God for what he's doing, looking to Christ for your salvation, looking to the Holy Spirit for empowering to do the things that God has called you to. That's a testimony I want to hear. That's a testimony I want to proclaim even through my own life. Whether it's with my family, whether it's with coworkers, most of them are saved. Whether it's with people that I just meet going about daily life. That's a testimony I want to live. I believe it to be true for you as well. See, an ancient Hebrew person reading this text would have thought, you know, God did this in our past. Daniel's writing to a group of people in exile. God did this in our past. I wonder if he'll do it again in our future. Perhaps you're wrestling with the same question today. Throughout Scripture, we're shown how lowly individuals, by the world standards, are brought to places of exaltation. It's displayed most clearly through Jesus, born in a stable. Poor, despised, then crucified. But after his resurrection revealing that God had given to him all authority in heaven and on earth. So here's the answer for us to understand to the question of God doing this in our past, but wondering if he'll do it again. Yes, God's done it before. And yes, God will do it again.